Hello, everybody, and welcome to this month's episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. We cover four stories each month, helping you get upskilled in the business world, starting getting you thinking about trends in business. This month, we cover companies posting a profit and why it takes some companies so long to get profitable. The business of green energy and the role companies have in driving innovation. The trend that conglomerates are breaking up and the importance of brand and personal brand in business. All of this and more. Let's get started. Hi there, Chris. How's it going? Going very well indeed, Ben. Looking forward to this particular one. We've got lots of exciting stuff to talk about. We have lots of things. There's been lots of stuff going on. There's uh, COP26. There has been um, lots of things happening in politics, lots of things happening in, in business, lots of announcements that we uh, want to be talking through over the next 40 to 50 minutes or so. But there is also two more reasons why it's particularly exciting. First of all, it is a, a year since we started doing this uh, podcast. Um, so we started it in November, mid-November last year, which was really fantastic. So thank you so much for all our listeners. Um, ultimately, if uh, we put it out there and no one listened, um, we probably wouldn't have done many more after the first couple. Um, but the fact that so many people got in touch, so many people have uh, enjoyed what we're doing, um, really appreciate and hope you're getting lots of good knowledge from, from this series as well. Um, but the second reason it's particularly exciting is because I am sitting face-to-face with Chris for the first time on this podcast. As you can imagine, um, if you remember back to last November, we were in that sort of mini lockdown um, and then into sort of the, the lockdown that started this year. Um, this is actually the first time in two years we've seen each other and also the first time in the podcast. So if it does sound a bit different, um, hopefully it sounds more fun, more entertaining. Um, it's definitely great for us to be back in person. Um, so uh, so hopefully it brings um, lots of cheer and a smile on your face for this episode as well. Chris, are you looking forward to doing it in person? Um, feel like we can get more out of it this I time? I think so, definitely. Yeah, very much so, Ben, very much. Perfect. Good stuff. Well, um, welcome. As uh, if you've listened before, you'll know that we're going to be covering three core stories um, this month. Um, We're going to go into the sort of trends around it, the business trends around each story to give you some insight so you can use it if you're entering the world of work, just starting the world of work. Um, and also if you're doing applications at the moment. And then we finish with one sort of business fun story. I wouldn't say fully fun. It's not a gossip column, um, but a little bit more fun, a little bit more out there maybe um, that you can get lots of knowledge for as well. Chris, are you ready to get started? I am. Fantastic. Really looking forward to it. Let's get going. So for story one this month, it's all about businesses posting a profit. Ultimately, it feels like the main goal of private businesses is to sell a product or a service um, for for more than they make it or can produce it um, and ultimately make money for the company. Um, But in more recent times or what feels like more recent times, um, companies have taken on lots and lots of investment to build out their assets, to build out their tech platforms, for instance, their apps, um, and delayed the amount of time it has taken to make a profit. And in some instances, it hasn't gone particularly well, and they've never made a profit. Um, 
But what we want to discuss is whether this is a modern trend in, in business or whether this is something that's been happening for years and years. And if it is a modern trend, um, what impact it's having on the economy right now. Um, if you've been following this story, you might have seen that Uber, for the first time in a decade, I can't actually believe that Uber's been around for a decade. It feels only, only a couple of years ago that um, we started taking Ubers, but it's been around for a decade. It actually posted profit for its quarter last quarter made 8 million compared to a $625 million loss in the same quarter last year. So has definitely driven towards profit, both for its um, ride hailing kind of app, but also Uber Eats um, as well. So first of all, Chris, what I wanted to talk through was, is this a new change in business that they're not making profit, they're taking on investment and looking for, I made the longer picture. Uh, no, um, uh, first of all, I'm really glad we're talking about this because um, in, in our podcast, Ben, we, we tend to talk very much about things that are current, but this idea of businesses posting a profit or not, this is absolutely central to commercial awareness. And it's very easy to think that uh, business is just about making profit, but actually it's about a lot of other things as well. But this question about, is it unusual for businesses to uh, survive without making a profit? And is this a, a modern phenomenon uh, driven by tech businesses? The, the, the answer is no. Um, the way businesses start is that they do need uh, a lot of capital to get going. Uh, it's very expensive, not so much to make your product or deliver your service, but just to get your name out there in the market. The costs of marketing are very great. And so when a business starts, it has to have either uh, investors, backers, or a pile of, of money, a pile of capital, in order to keep it going until the point at which it's sufficiently well-known in the market to sell products in order to start generating cash and ultimately a profit. But um, although uh, we're very familiar with, with large tech companies going for a long time without making a profit, uh, this has happened before, um, predating big tech in biotechnology, for example, and life sciences, where uh, you might get a spin-off from a university that is uh, looking to commercialize uh, some research. And in biotech, it can take you know, five to 10 years of research and development to actually create a product which you've got any chance of marketing. So for me, biotech was doing this long before big tech was. In other words, starting businesses that uh, in the short to medium term, you know, two to five years were simply not going to make any money at all. But what about the sort of old manufacturing industries so if they were, obviously, there was cost to set up factories and, um, and things like that. But surely they needed to turn a profit a lot quicker. It's a, it's, a, it's a good question. And it takes us back to the meaning of the term uh, capitalism, which is obviously based on capital. But the traditional economist's way of looking at business was that in order to have businesses, you needed three things. You needed uh, capital, money. You needed property. You needed premises on which uh, or from which your business would operate. And you need labor. You need, you need employees. And I think what's interesting about big tech is that on the face of it, they don't really need much capital. They're, they're, they're not plant-intensive businesses. They don't have a lot of plant machinery factories. Um, and yet they, they do still need money 
mainly to get uh, their name out there. Because the point about big tech is that it benefits from what's called the, the uh, network effect. In other words, if you go back to when the telephone was first introduced 100, 150 years ago, uh, having one customer with a phone was useless. Having two customers with a phone, well, at least they could talk to each other. Having 200 customers with phones, well, that's a whole network of people who can talk to each other. And a lot of tech businesses depend on this network effect. In other words, the more customers you've got, the more market dominant you are, then in a sense, the more attractive you are in terms of the services that you provide. I think a classic example of that is uh, is dating apps, especially. You know, there's no point having a dating app with a few people on there, and you know the modern ones where you swipe away and do all of that sort of stuff. You need to have a lot of people joining at exactly the same point. So you can imagine the budgets that they're going to run through on a week by week basis to to get that network effect and so i think that's quite a personal example of kind of a modern business which requires that network of course social networks like twitter facebook um did that as well but especially in the sort of dating space i think it's a very good example of of what we're talking about that's a perfect example absolutely perfect example so my question goes to how can businesses survive so long without making a profit um the, the answer is that there is a whole subsector of the finance uh, business industry that is focused on startups. So if I start a business on my kitchen table, uh, the people I initially look to for funding, they're they're known in, in finance circles as the three Fs, family, friends, and fools. It's a bit of a pejorative term. But in other words, I, I, I look to the people I know to help fund me. And then beyond that, I can go to people called business angels. Um, there, there, are, there are theatrical angels, people who are interested in, in the theater and they will fund on a personal basis, West End productions. So most West End productions depend on theatrical angels to put up uh, a few hundred pounds each to get a production off the ground. Well, in business circles, you, you have the same sort of people. Uh, most well-known probably is Julian Richer, Uh, of Richard Sounds, who uh, was a hugely successful uh, entrepreneur selling hi-fi separates. Uh, He's since actually given his business to his employees. And now what he does is he he funds startups that he's interested in. So you can go to business angels. But then beyond that, there's a a part of the financial markets called venture capital. It's called venture capital because it's venture, it's an adventure, it's risky, and it's capital, it's providing lumps of dosh. And venture capital people uh, specialize in uh, funding startups, uh, which they hope will be successful. And the thing about startups is that two out of three go bust within the first five years. So it's very high risk. But what these venture capitalists do is they 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 spread their their investments sufficiently widely so that although some will go bust, others will be hugely successful. And what they're looking for is that is that enormous success in in uh, investing terms. There are uh, investments called uh, ten baggers. In other words, uh, you put in a quid, and uh, what you get out is is ten times the amount that you invested. So that's what they're looking for, venture capitalists. They're looking for that that massive return from something that is extremely successful. And so, for example, people who invested in Amazon 
when it, when uh, Jeff Bezos first started it, uh, for a long time, it wasn't making any money at all. It was focused on, on selling books. Now, of course, Amazon does everything. And those original investors, um, uh, the, the amount they've made is absolutely colossal. I think for every dollar that they invested, they've made over $3,000 back and possibly more than that. So that's what they're looking for. They, these are investors of a certain type who are prepared to accept losses on businesses that, that fail in order for those massive returns on businesses that succeed. Yeah, really amazing. Venture capital definitely isn't a long-term game. They're really looking for that exponential growth that uh, can happen over just a handful of years yeah. to really see what's working. And then the idea being is if they get 10, tenfold yeah. on their investment, one company, it covers the losses of the three or four out of the X number they invest in that, um, that, that don't actually succeed. Looking at sort of the wider picture of companies, especially tech companies, not posting a profit, is there a problem for the economy having really high value businesses where a lot of people are investing in, especially if they've gone public, that aren't making any money? Do you know, it's a really good question, Ben, to which, to tell you the truth, I don't really know the answer. I mean, my, my gut feel is that although they may not be making a profit they're making sales. Mm -hmm. So they are generating cash and they're using that cash to pay their employees. Their employees are then able to spend that money uh, themselves. Uh, they will be paying taxes on that money. So in that sense, even though a business may not be generating a profit as such, provided it's got cash flow, that cash is entering the economy. So my, my, my feeling is that probably it's okay. I mean, if all businesses in an economy were in this position, then the economy itself might suffer from that lack of profitability. But the thing about the business world is that it covers the whole waterfront. So you've got long established businesses that are making a lot of cash, but they're not really expanding at one end of the spectrum. And then at the other end, you've got these startups, some of them from massive startups that haven't actually posted a profit yet. And, and the whole, and, and the business world is, is across that entire spectrum. So my feeling is that it, it, it doesn't affect economies that, that much. Just one thing to say by, by way of, of warning, which is quite interesting, is that the way um, startup businesses are valued is by successive found funding rounds. So you start a business, uh, you get a few investors in, and then down the road, you decide to sell a chunk of the business. Now, let's say you sell off 10% of the business for a billion pounds. That puts a total value on the business of 10 billion. And that's what venture capitalists will tell you it's worth. But actually, that's not been tested in the market. That's simply what somebody has been prepared to pay for 10% of your business. And although you can extrapolate from that, say, okay, the business is now worth 10 billion, there's no real test of that. Because when you think about it, it's in the interest of existing investors to play up the value of the investee company. So when you look at, uh, at so-called valuations, I always look at them cautiously because although that's the value that the people in the business and investors in the business would like to put on it, it isn't necessarily the value until it's been tested by, for example, uh, going public through an initial public offering, an IPO. And that's when you get the true worth of what people are prepared to pay for it. Because mm, it's a very simple measure. If someone is looking to invest in a company, often it's not based on profitability, especially if it's a new company, it'll be based on revenue, as you sort of discussed in the previous answer. So, you know, often it'll be something like three to four times um, revenue. But for some of these tech businesses, it can be sort of 10 times, if not even more, their revenue. 
as sort of an ev evaluation, as, as you say, current investors, founders want to make sure that they're getting the highest um, uh, increase or the highest uh, highest value for their company once it's ready to sell. And investors talk about price earnings, the PE mm. ratio. So how much do you have to pay for this company? And how long will it take for that purchase price to be paid out by the earnings of the company? And this differs from sector to sector. So in some sectors, it's no more than a P of no more than three or four. So um, you invest in the company and over three or four years, the return the company makes will, will pay back that investment. But now what you see in the markets are very, very high valuations on P's of, of as much as 50. So in other words, if I buy this company now, it's gonna take 50 years of this company's earnings to pay me back. That's why you've gotta be a bit cautious about these valuations. Great stuff. I think we're going to leave that story there. Lots of positivity there. I've posed whether there's potential problems, but like always with Chris, there doesn't seem to be much problem there. So the second story for this week is all about green energy. It's been a huge topic of conversation over the last month. I'm sure that you would have seen COP26 in, in Glasgow and all of the sort of battles to try and get an agreement between all the nations there. But what we want to focus on is the business involvement in trying to um, keep the temperature at the level it needs to be, um, reduce uh, emissions from fossil fuels, um, but also looking at the innovation that uh, is coming out uh, from UK businesses, uh, especially. You might have read recently Rolls-Royce is investing in uh, nuclear power, um, in reactors or these small reactors that we're sort of uh, potentially going to be seeing over the next uh, couple of decades. Um, but Chris, what I want to start with first, there seems to be a little bit of a reluctance from sort of some countries, or there definitely is from specifically China, Saudi Arabia, India, um, over COP26, but across across the board, there's lots of other countries as well, a little bit reluctant to move towards net zero, reducing coal, fossil fuels as well. Can you talk me through a little bit of why you think that is? Is that a business thing or is that more a political thing? Um, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for developing economies, which are uh, being asked to to join in with uh, uh, the moves by developed economies to to to, to tackle climate change because the, these are countries that are relatively small uh, in economic terms they're relatively young and they often have to deal with high levels of, of poverty and if you look at it from their point of view um, they see developed economies which have had the benefit of polluting for centuries and have now exported their manufacturing to developing economies. So they've kind of moved the, 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 the polluting businesses offshore, as it were, turning around and saying to these developing economies, you've now got to participate in this, even if it's not going to help you economically. So I think developing economies are simply saying, look, um, you, the developed economies, are wealthy. You need to help us uh, uh, adopt the measures that we all globally need to adopt to tackle climate change. It's unfair that you should treat us uh, as equals with you in this because you've had the benefit 
of building up industry over the centuries. And, and we haven't, and you are richer than us, so you need to help us in this. So I see it very much in, in those terms. And, and uh, you know, some of the countries you've mentioned for them, um, uh, coal is a critical source of energy and they need to be helped to be weaned off it. So that's really the, the, the way I see it. Obviously, there's clearly a government role in what you've just discussed. We look to businesses, um, especially private businesses. Um, how can they support with these goals? And also maybe what is holding them back supporting? Because obviously there is cost with going green. Um, there is government um, support often at the moment. Um, but from a business point of view, what do you think they're thinking about when it comes to all of this? Well, I, I think there's a, a, a real misconception about this. It's very easy to think that business does not want to do this. Um, and I, I think that is incorrect. Uh, business wants to do this for two reasons. One is whenever there is innovation and change, there's money to be made. So to be blunt about it, climate change is encouraging new ways of generating energy. And if you're one of the providers of those new, new ways, then, then you're going to do very well. So for example, there's a Danish uh, company called Orsted, which is now a market leader, a global leader in offshore wind farms. It's done extremely well at that, and, and uh, its market valuation has, has rocketed as a result. So the first thing is there is money to be made out of this. The other thing to realize is that business is not faceless and monolithic. Business is made up of people, people with children, people who care about the future. And so to, to, to regard business as, as a force that is doing a, 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 the, the least it possibly can to take on climate change is, is actually untrue. Now, what do I mean by this in practice? Well, one of the biggest pressures on business is from institutional investors. So for example, pension funds that invest the money that they look after in order to provide pensions for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And they are saying to the, their investee companies, you need to tackle climate change and we will support you in doing that. It's going to cost money, but we want our investee companies to be green because that's the future. There's no point in investing in companies that are going to go out of business because uh, their, their energy consumption or the types of energy they, they, they consume are not sustainable. So the way I look at it is that one needs to stop thinking of business as, as the, the force that is trying to prevent climate change and to think of business as very much a force that that uh, uh, want, wants to adopt the measures that will enable us to uh, to to uh, address climate change and the role of government here is very interesting because um, I personally think that government is quite a blunt instrument um, it, it's not very good at doing things in a, in a micro way. Um, what government is good at doing is setting policy and either imposing the stick of regulation to force people to do what it thinks is right, but also the, the, the carrot of incentives to encourage them to do so. And that's frankly what, what government needs to do. It needs to set the policy, it needs to increase regulation, it needs to provide incentives where they're required, and then it's up to business to deliver. But I think people on the business side are, are very happy to do this. And the only thing that is holding them back is that at the moment, 
we consume huge amounts of energy, uh, personally and organizationally. And fossil fuels currently provide four-fifths of the world's energy supply and also emit the bulk of global greenhouse gas emissions. So in a sense, the pressure is on all of us as individuals, as well as on businesses, to change the way in which we use energy. So I think we all have to contribute to this as individuals and as consumers um, and understand that while we maintain our, our energy requirements and demands, it's awfully difficult for business to switch overnight out of, out of uh, energy from fossil fuels and adopting renewables to meet the demand that we as consumers have for energy. Definitely. There's a couple of points I wanted to pick up on that and talking about institutional investors, whether it's pension funds. Um, if you're obviously a bit young, you might not start paying into your pension fund yet, but you might be paying into ISAs and, and stuff like that. There are increasing opportunities, not just for sort of green energy funds, but even just portfolios which don't include um, certain industries like fossil fuels. Um, because they know these institutional investors, big you know, investment managers, asset managers, that um, people want to see that, customers want to see that they're not investing in, uh, in, in certain companies or in companies which are encouraging fossil fuels, oil, gas, whatever it might be. And the, the second thing I uh, wanted to cover off was actually uh, a speech that probably wouldn't have gained any traction by Boris Johnson, the prime minister, if it wasn't for the fact that he, um, well, he's been heavily criticised to say the least. I think he had a bit of a bit of a nightmare um, throughout it. But one thing beyond sort of the waffling about Peppa Pig and, and stuff like that was his kind of point that you know government can't solve all of these problems. That ultimately the innovation of business and facilitating that innovation of business, it, it definitely goes to show that is very in line with kind of government thinking that is that actually can we facilitate the carrot, so to speak, when it comes to the environment and get the best minds, not just in Britain, across the world to work on these problems. And, you know, they will make money out of it, but also solve problems. And that's the kind of in any capitalist system, that's the ideal that you've got an opportunity or facilitated by government to make money, better yourselves, employ people, um, but also uh, do good and don't uh, harm stuff like the environment, society, whatever it might be um, as well. Chris, in terms of when it comes to clean energy, who is investing in it and what are the incentives for investing? Because we've talked about government, they're providing subsidies. And yeah. actually, one of the key points over Glasgow was to encourage countries, especially developing countries, not to subsidise fossil fuels or, or energy that comes from fossil fuels and stop doing that and actually move their subsidies towards um, business who, who's, businesses who are innovating in kind of green energy. Um, but yeah, who else is investing? Well, the short answer is uh, everyone. I mean, there, there is in the investing world a very strong movement around what's called ESG, environmental, social and governmental issues. And uh, investee companies have to show their ESG credentials to attract capital. But when you, when you look at the, the whole array of, of businesses out there, you've got existing energy companies. Now, I know oil companies are seen as the, as, as, um, you know, the villains of the piece because they, they're very much uh, based on fossil fuels. But um, 
a number of oil companies are at the forefront of clean energy because that's the business they're in. And they understand the production of energy and also critically its distribution. So for example, oil companies that have petrol forecourts are very heavily involved in provision of um, charging points for, uh, for EVs, for example. So existing energy companies, they can see that their existing business model is not going to last. So they're, they're amongst those at the forefront of doing this. Then you've got new startups in the field. We were talking the last story about venture capital. Uh, lots of startup investors in, in, in this field. You've got new entrants. I mean, um, somebody who's very well known in the UK is, is Dale Vince, who started Ecotricity. Uh, he owns Forest Green Football Club, and I know you and I are both footy fans. And Forest Green Football Club, for those that are interested, is the first football club to introduce vegetarian-only hamburger bars, for example. Now, people like him who really believe in it, and uh, they basically put, put their money where, where their mouth is. And then, as I mentioned, businesses like, like Orsted, which is a substantial Danish company. So if you're interested in the sector, you can look and find lots and lots of businesses um, that are trying to find new ways of, of creating uh, clean energy. Um, so actually, my answer to your question is far more people involved in this than, than one might otherwise think. Amazing. And going for a slightly more out there point, but I know you'll know a little bit about this because we both read The Economist and there's lots of stuff <laughs> being written in the last sort of three or four months, rightly so, in The Economist, but loads of other publications um, as well. Um, but there's a number of different routes being taken. We mentioned Rolls-Royce um, and also Hinkley Point is a classic example that you would have probably seen on the news going in the kind of nuclear space and actually Rolls-Royce um, innovating by doing smaller reactors or building lots of smaller kind of plants. Um, there's also a lot of talk about hydrogen, of course, wind farming, especially in, in, in Scotland, that's become uh, a massive thing. You, if you go north of the border, which I did uh, very, very recently, uh, you'll see, uh, see lots of uh, wind turbines um, flying away, especially across the hills and out into sea as well. There's obviously a number of different approaches I could take and possibly it could be a case of you know, all of these things combined will um, solve the, the the problems. But what's really taking your fancy at the moment? What's really exciting you uh, in this space? I've always liked the idea of renewables. I've always liked the idea of wind and solar. Now, I, I know that some people say that that wind farms are an eyesore and they make a they make a buzzing noise and, and they're irritating. But I I mean, I actually find them quite incredible. I mean, the size of these masts and the propellers, I find uh, breathtaking. So I, 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 like, I like wind and solar because I love this idea of harnessing natural energy. I'm also interested in hydrogen because when burnt, hydrogen only produces water and it can be manufactured without releasing uh, carbon dioxide. And uh, uh, call me an, an oldie if you like, but I like the idea of going back to hydrogen balloons instead of planes, you know? I mean, if, if we traveled round by uh, large hot air balloons, you know, travel would be more sedate, right? It would take longer to get to places, but it would have a certain civilized nature to it. Whereas at the moment getting on a plane is, is like basically, you know, getting on a bus or a train, you're all herded in. And I'd also secretly like the return to the idea of sailing ships, you know, which 
you know, sailing ships, they're as eco as you can get. So, um, so I, I accept that some of my, my wishful fancies may not be terribly realistic, but I'd love to see some of those ideas in practice. Definitely. And I think the whole opportunity now is to solve these problems. I think we have immediate threats, which are obviously going to cause worry and stuff like that. But to really solve these problems, I think there's a classic phrase, there's only, there's not problems, there's only solutions and stuff like that. And I think business individuals need to have that attitude and that mindset towards it. There are some very big goals, which if we don't start now, we will miss. Like that's ultimately very clear from COP26, from everything that you read. Um, but facilitating that innovation, getting more bright grads, I'm sure a lot of you listening today will be very interested in going to this, this, uh, this sector, solving these problems and coming up with new innovations is going to be fundamental. And as we've said before, can support making money, make business, can support new industries, jobs and everything like that, which is very exciting. Well, just as an aside to that, this idea of, of very large hot air balloons, as we used to have in the 20s and 30s, one of the great advantages of them is that they can carry massive payloads. And I've seen uh, really uh, scholarly articles written by engineers who say, if we could return to that technology, we could actually also help solve global poverty because the amount of food that you can move by hot air balloon to those parts of the world where people are starving is really massive and, and it dwarfs the amount of, of food that you can move by, by current conventional aircraft, for example. So I think there might be uh, uh, knock-on benefits, quite aside from helping to tackle climate change, from adopting some of these ideas, which in the past might have seemed a, a bit more ludicrous than they do now. Really interesting stuff, Chris. Let's leave it there for this story. For our third story of this month, we're going to be talking about multinational, multi-sector conglomerates. And actually, a lot of these big businesses, which are deciding to split into smaller focused businesses, work out the reasons why and sort of delve a little bit deeper into how they've got to where they are and why they're making this change. To bring it back into some of the stories of recent weeks, uh, you might have seen that Johnson & Johnson have decided to split into a couple of different businesses. Uh, Toshiba, the Japanese tech company, um, splitting into three businesses. And GE, one of the big powerhouses of the 20th century, the US company, again, splitting into three separate businesses. Chris, what I want to talk about is, first of all, what is a conglomerate? And then second of all, why was there a benefit for these big companies to be created over the last hundred years? Just like the story on profit, our first story, I'm really pleased that we're covering this because um, this brings out some things that I'm most interested in, in business. And above all, this idea that business is dynamic. It's very easy to think that business is static and therefore quite boring, but actually the business world is changing at an incredible pace. And the other thing that's quite strange about business is that as with everything else, it's subject to fads and fashion. So for example, you, 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 um, you start your business, you're really good at one thing in particular, and then uh, you realize that you can use the skill that has made you really good in, in one thing to maybe do something else. So for example, you, you, uh, you produce goods, 
and uh, you're very good at manufacturing them and you're good at distributing them. And then you think, well, we're really good at this. So why don't, why don't we actually move into distribution? Because that's part of what we do. So you, you build a distribution arm. Then you think um, we're really good at getting this to the customer. Why, why, don't we, why don't we build some retail outlets? And before you know it, you're a manufacturer, you've got a whole logistics delivery uh, business and you've got retail outlets. You're basically a conglomerate. And the term conglomerate just means a business that does a number of things. And what happens in business terms is that, as I say, you go through periods of fashion. So in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, and I'm the only one involved in this podcast who will remember those days, it was very fashionable to build conglomerates. The idea being, if you're really good at one thing, you can be really good at uh, uh, loads of other things. But businesses are forever uh, questioning themselves about what is their USP? What makes them different? Is it the fact that they're able to manage lots of different types of business and allocate capital according to where needed. So if you take something like Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway, he started off as an investor, but Berkshire Hathaway is now a conglomerate. It owns outright loads and loads of different businesses from railroads to estate agencies. Um, uh, and Berkshire Hathaway itself was originally a clothing company. So the one thing I would like to get across in, in this part of the podcast is this idea that businesses are forever changing. They're moving from one core skill to a number of core skills, and then they're, they're selling those off and they're getting back to what made them great in the first place. Yeah, amazing. Because with Johnson & Johnson, a company that I'm sure most people would, would have heard of and know some of their products, it does seem to make logical sense what they're splitting into. They've got consumer business, which is sort of Listerine, you know, shampoos, baby products, stuff like that. And then they've got their more kind of pharmaceutical medical equipment division. But you do feel that's kind of vaguely within the realm of similarity in there. Whereas for uh, GE, which is uh, General Electric, they're splitting into three, which one is a healthcare business, one is renewable energy power digital, and the third one is jet engines. Still, to me, going from a healthcare business and then having a jet engine business, that does feel like you're not going to make gains in terms of you know, knowledge crossing over or um, having people who are able to work in sort of both areas. They are very, very different. And is that part of why they're kind of splitting up? They just feel that it's just too much to manage. Yes. Uh, let me park G just for a moment. I'll come okay. back to it. But but the, the pharmaceuticals examples are really interesting because uh, there's a lot of debate about um, in pharma, it's feast or famine. So you need to have a pipeline of medications that are going to find a market because they're very, very expensive to develop. And it's it's very it's a very lumpy business. So defenders of the traditional types of pharmaceutical company would say, because that's very lumpy in terms of earnings, we need another part of the business which is very stable. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that, that's what consumer healthcare gives us. You know, we can sell these products um, in supermarkets, that gives us a steady income. And with that stability, we can then invest in, in um, uh, R&D for medications, some, some, many of which will never reach a market. So that's the diversification argument that you, you, you've, you're running businesses in tandem that provide you overall with stability. Now, GE is, um, it's, it's really a matter of history. In General Electric, 
was the first business to put refrigerators in every American home. And from that engineering basis, it moved into things like aero engines and so on. But also it moved into finance because a lot of the kit that it was manufacturing uh, could only be bought by, by businesses if it provided the funding as well. And I suspect that it was from that that it moved into healthcare. It might well have been through the finance side. And for a long time, GE was principally uh, a finance provider rather than an engineering company. And under a famed, famed CEO called Jack Welch, it did incredibly well until he retired in, in the late 1990s, early two, 2000s. And since then, um, a bit like Man United post Alex Ferguson, it's had a succession of business leaders who've not really been able to make sense of it. And, and as a result, its valuation of the market has gone down. And so finally, uh, the decision has been taken that needs to break itself up because the... Uh, on the one hand, you get conglomerates because they see the benefits of diversification. On the other hand, the reason why businesses break themselves up is, is because they want to, to use the jargon, they want to realize the value inherent in the business. They feel that the market is not putting a proper valuation on the combined business. So by splitting the businesses out and, and selling them off individually or floating them or giving shares in them to the existing shareholders in the overall business, they will create greater value. Yeah, really interesting sort of stuff. Um, so if I'm a shareholder or someone looking to buy shares and you hear talk of businesses that are going to split up, should I be buying shares in them? How does it kind of work in terms of if you buy a share, let's say in Johnson & Johnson, now they've announced that they will, um, over the next 18 to 24 months, be splitting into two separate businesses. Um can you invest in them? Should you invest in them? Um, how does the kind of mechanics of that work? Well, I'd like to I'd like to step back from that for a moment mm -hmm. to to kind of ask and answer the question: How do these things happen in the first place? And generally, how they happen is that there is that there are there are investors called activist investors. They will buy shares in a business sufficient to allow them to put somebody on the board of directors. So you know they might buy five percent. Of, of a company. And then they will, and they're called activist investors because they will then start agitating for the breakup of the company. Now, what I find quite ironic about this is that they, they often speak from the point of view of, of you know, what is best for the company in the long term. So the company splits itself up, they then sell their shares. So they're not long-term investors at all. What they're trying to do is to get a short-term benefit of encouraging a company to break itself up get the benefit of that increased realized value and then walk away. And then, you know, the pension funds and insurance companies that are long-term investors in that company, they're kind of left holding the pieces as it were, because it doesn't always follow that when you break a company up, um, it's going to have an overall increased valuation because there are, there are some benefits from being a conglomerate. One of them is it's easier for you to raise capital overall because you're large, you can raise capital cheaply, and then you can allocate it to those parts of the business that use the capital most efficiently. Once these businesses have been split up and they have to raise money themselves, it's often more expensive for them to do that. So again, when looking at these things, I'm often looking for uh, what is actually going on here? Who's driving this change? Have they really got the long-term interests of the business at heart? Or are they themselves just trying to make a quick buck out of it? Yeah, really interesting stuff. Moving slightly away from that, final question on this story. 
You've got a wealth of knowledge, Chris. We've seen that through various episodes of uh, of thinking commercially. Um, but are there any examples in the past which maybe our listeners could look into about this going wrong, as in splitting up a business, not the regulatory side of things, but a company taking a proactive step to try and gain more market value across multiple different businesses or even do it because they've just got too big and it's not worked out? Um, to tell you the truth, not not really. I mean, um, there, 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 there are examples in the past of, of conglomerates that, that uh, I know there is a business case example. It still exists as a company, but it doesn't do the same thing. But there is the business case example of a company called Tomkins. And Tomkins was a very, very successful UK subsidiary in the 80s and 90s. And it owned uh, uh, an array of, of really quite disparate businesses. It, it owned RHM, the baking business. It owned a gun manufacturing business. Uh, I think it was also in, in fire, fire security. Um, and these businesses had nothing in common, except that uh, the people running the business were really good at stripping out cost and understanding how to maximize the profit potential. And eventually Tompkins was broken up because the market felt that actually uh, the benefits of having these very disparate businesses together under one roof were outweighed by the disadvantages. So that, that's a, that's a well-known uh, MBA business case study of a company that was very successful and then over time uh, split itself up because it felt that it was less successful as a conglomerate than, than, than uh, as, as the constituent parts separated out and sold off. Really, really interesting stuff. Thanks so much for that example, Chris. Um, definitely look up Tompkins as a case study. Um, really good one for your kind of commercial awareness, especially if you are looking to work in one of these big companies, um, especially if they are, as we've said earlier, one of the companies that are looking to split up in the coming years, because there's multi, multiple ones of these, um, not just the three that we've spoken about in this story. Our final and business fund story for this month is all around meta platforms or Facebook. And there's adverts all over social media um, about it. And it was a big story about three or four weeks ago um, that Facebook changed its name to meta platforms. And there's a number of reasons why they've done this, which we're going to be exploring. Um, obviously, it was in the context of the whistleblower who was talking about Facebook knew kind of their algorithms were potentially making people um, feel less good about themselves or um, it sort of made society uh, less cohesive and stuff like that. So those stories, as well as lots of different cases like you know, Cambridge Analytica scandal a few years ago and things like that, where um, Facebook's brand kind of got drawn through the, the mud, so to speak, and uh, maybe it doesn't quite have the same sort of brand equity that it did um, a few years ago. However, the change comes at quite an interesting time because we're talking about the, the metaverse and how the internet progresses to become more of a 3D sort of experience for people. So actually, even though it might be quite handy to uh, change the brand name now for various reasons, actually moving it to call it meta puts it sort of at the front foot of where the future of the internet could be going and might be quite a shrewd move. So Chris, what I want to ask you is, what do you think has driven this change of name and what impact do you think it could have? 
It's a really interesting question, and and I'm I'm sure it's been prompted in in part short term by the the, the regulatory flack that Facebook has has been drawing. So I, I think it is partly that. But to tell you the truth, I think it's probably driven by um, the fact that you know Mark Zuckerberg, you know he's a visionary. He's thinking about where he wants to take his business, which is what business leaders do. That's their job. I suspect it's also a reflection of boredom on his part because he's he's now spent all of his adult life uh, nurturing Facebook and turning it into what it is now. And he's probably a bit bored with that. You know, if, if you wake up, go into the office in the morning, spend all of your time doing that and then go home in the evening and it's the same thing day after day, even though there are new challenges to face, you probably want to do other things. And I, I think he's, I, I think it's partly because uh, he really does believe in the metaverse and that's where he wants to take this business. And I suspect also that it's a very genuine reflection of a change in the underlying business that all of the software engineers that he's got working uh, for him, this is the way they're going. So he wants that reflected in, in the name of the business. Definitely. And if you haven't um, read a little bit about the metaverse, I'm sure a lot of people um, would have done. Definitely worth um, search for it on our Instagram and LinkedIn. We'll put a couple of links to various articles which give you a bit of a, a 101 um, on it. But it's really the direction that the well, a lot of people expect the Internet to take and um, becoming very much like more like a virtual world rather than something that you look at on 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 a, on a screen on a laptop or a or a, or a desktop. Um, moving slightly away from the metaverse and looking at brands specifically, um, companies spend fortunes on their brand. They spend fortunes protecting their brand. Could you quantify for a business how important a, uh, a brand is? I think I think there's a very famous quote where it's, it takes 20 years to uh, create a, a brand and 20 minutes to, to ruin it. Um, but from a business point of view, and a lot of people might not want to go into marketing or branding or anything like that, how important is it? And where are the examples where the brand is is the business kind of thing? So really good question. And I think I think it's crucial. I think it's really important. Um, going back 20 odd years, 30 years, branding was about logo. It was about your advertising slogan. It's far more important than that now. Um, it, it sounds a bit cheesy to say it, but, um, you know, just 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 looking at what, what Facebook has done, you know, people are skeptical. But in years to come, we'll refer to it as meta without even remembering Facebook at all. So the funny thing about brands is that they might come across as a bit cheesy, but they are very effective. And the most successful brands are those that reflect the underlying values of the organization. And consumers are really astute at detecting whether the brand reflects the underlying values and what those values are. Um, and, and increasingly with consumer power, if they don't like it, they will shun the business. So businesses have really got to protect their brands, but ensure that their brands absolutely reflect the underlying values of, of the business. Because if you harness a successful brand, then it does affect the way consumers think about you. And 
frankly, even more importantly than that, it affects your employees and the way they think about the business and how they feel they're contributing to the future of the business. So uh, I think brands, if, if, if successfully adopted, uh, can be enormously powerful from, from, from that point of view. We're increasingly, as individuals and a society, purpose-led. So we stand by, often quite um, rigidly, um, certain sets of values, whether it's on the environment, whether it's on you know, political beliefs, societal beliefs and stuff like that. And I think with Gen Z, people that are probably now um, no more than 23, 24 years old, I think uh, Gen, Gen Z will be, um, that's becoming more and more important. And ultimately, um, as those people get older, they get wealthier um, and um, they will be growing up with certain brands which they um, affiliate with because it is, uh, they stand for similar things to, to them, which is really important. I think I want to go on, and this is a slightly different brand question, because this is about personal brand. Um, we will talk at Bright Network about building your own personal brand. Um, but a lot of the big founders, and one we've spoken about with Mark Zuckerberg um, recently, they are big sort of celebrities i think there's probably no no way of uh saying it other than that elon musk jeff bezos and stuff like that so not only is their business interests and what they're doing in the business world talked about but they're increasingly in the gossip gossip uh, columns over you know divorces or kids or you know what they're just generally doing in their in in their life one thing happened in the last couple of weeks where elon musk uh, put on twitter did a twitter poll um, saying whether he should sell a proportion of his shares in Tesla, um, which came out, yes, and I presume will um, follow up on, on that. Is there a bit of a problem? Because that caused Tesla's share price to dip quite a lot in the short term, granted. Um, but these kind of celebrity owners, these celebrity, very powerful people because of all the wealth they have, but also the businesses they own, is there a slight problem they have? so much access to to people through social media, but also that they are possibly seen more like celebrities as well as business owners? It's a really good question. And, and um, in, in the short term, it can be terrific for business if it's got a founder who is charismatic um, and uh, attracts a lot of interest in the market. I mean, um, Elon Musk, the, the, the only problem with asking that sort of question via Twitter is that, as you said, it can easily distort the market in Tesla shares. And people like the Securities and Exchange Commission, and apologies for approaching this from a kind of market point of view, but people like the SEC are concerned when uh, the price of, of listed companies uh, uh, can, can be distorted in that way. Mm -hmm. So I personally thought that was an odd thing to do. I mean, why, why should what he does with his investment in the company that he started and leads be affected by what people who aren't even shareholders should tell him on Twitter. And I, I understand that he'd already sold a number of shares in advance of whatever the, 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 the Twitter response was anyway. So I think from the point of view of investors in a business, and, and for that matter, the people who work in a business, the only problem with having a very prominent leader is that leader can become a business risk because if if anything if any bad stories emanate from the celebrity of that leader that negatively impact the business 
then you know that 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 is a risk that you can do without. Um, so I, I I think it's a, a, a I think there are pros and cons either way. When a business is getting off the grounds, it, can, it, it off the ground, it can it can be really helpful to have somebody who's out there. Uh, but uh, after business is established, that's actually when you want the the, the sort of managerial people who are less interested in developing a personal profile and more interested in actually running a business successfully in charge. Amazing stuff. I think we're going to leave it there for that final story of this month. It's been a real pleasure doing this in person. Hopefully at home you found it super interesting, super helpful. And of course, if you've got any questions for me or Chris, and or if you want to ask a question to us on the podcast next month, um, definitely, definitely get in touch. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you very much, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes, that was the first episode that we've done in person. We hope you enjoy it. Me and Chris certainly did, and we hope you're getting lots of great insights. Do head to our Instagram channel. Do head to our LinkedIn. There's lots of great stuff there which you can find out about. And looking forward to seeing you next time.